This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Welcome to Questions and Ethics with Russell Moore, where we apply the gospel of the kingdom to cultural issues and your questions about the Christian life. Now, in this session, we're going to have a questions and ethics time with Russell Moore. So probably many of you are familiar with Dr. Moore's podcast by the name Questions and Ethics. And my goal during this time, Dr. Moore, is to help you step on everybody's toes in the room. Okay. You're going to be nobody that's left here at least slightly offended right. uh, by something that you say. That, that's, that's my that's guess. That's how we roll. That's yeah. how we roll. Because yeah. we're going to give you the hard questions. So okay. let's start off with one like this. So... Right now in America, the average age for marriage is about 29 for men. It's about 27 for women. That's been trending over, older and older over time. What, what's your assessment of that trend, and how should Christians think about that? Should Christian young adults buy into that trend, kind of wait for marriage as a capstone for them, or should they be bucking that trend and marrying younger? Well, I think there's a danger when you talk about the general trend and say there's some concerns here. For people to think that what we mean is, okay, that means that there's an age that you should be married by this particular age if you're going to be married or you're, or you're wrong, you're a failure, you're, 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 you're doing things uh, the wrong way. And that's just, that's just not the case. I think what we ought to be looking for is finding a, a single young man needs to be looking for a wife if he's, if he's called to be married that God would have for him who meets the biblical qualifications to be a godly wife and uh, that he loves and, and will be able to, to live in a happy marriage. You have the woman looking for a man who meets those qualifications rather than, okay, it's this age and, and here we are. That said, I think that one of the things that happens is that there are some people who assume that you have to have everything in order financially and economically before you get married. Uh, and I think that happens even within the church. I remember when uh, my wife and I were dating and I really wanted to, I wanted to get married, but I thought I can't afford it because everybody kept telling me, make sure you don't get married until you can afford it. And so I'm trying to think about what kind of bank account I needed to have. And, you know, I could barely get cheese sandwiches together, you know, for to eat uh, every day. And thankfully, I had a grandmother who lived through the Great Depression who said, that's nonsense. Nobody can afford to get married. You just, you know, you know we, we got married in the middle of a, of a stock market crash where we were, you know, just surviving off of whatever we could boil. She said, you can, you can afford to get married. And apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, I think those were the most liberating words I have ever heard in my life. And I said, you know what? She's exactly right. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, and I, so I think that there are some economic factors that, that tend to, uh, that tend to drive people sometimes in appropriate ways. We don't want to get somebody else into a situation in which our lives are economically a wreck and when we need to fix it. But that doesn't mean that we need to have everything the way that we want our lives to be before we join together in marriage. I think that's a, that's a dangerous sort of trend. I think it happens within the church. 
Uh, I remember years ago, I was preaching in a church in Arkansas. I was doing a January Bible study going through 1 Corinthians all week long, going through 1 Corinthians. But you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where the Apostle Paul says, uh, if a young man's having trouble uh, behaving the way he ought toward his betrothed, let them marry. He said, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And so I talked about that. And I said, you know, you, you really don't need these, these two-year engagements, uh, you know, to get everything uh, ready and all those sorts of things. And I had a group of people so mad at me after... Uh, it was this uh, this uh, middle-aged couple, and they came up with their son, Chad, and his fiance Tina. And they said, now, Brother Moore, you said that, and, uh, but Chad and Tina, they've been engaged for four years and uh, <laughs> dated for two years before that. And we're waiting for Tina to get through with her M.A. and Chad. We want him to get through and get a house and, and all of these things. And I said, you know what? I'm not giving a general rule. There's an exception to every rule. I'm just teaching you what the Bible says. I said, I think we should just, uh, we should just give thanks to God, uh, that through the power of the Spirit, He's been able to preserve Chad and Tina from sexual immorality. Right, Chad? And um, we were there for a little while, and then everyone kind of slipped away, and it struck me that the idea for them of Chad not making it economically was a worse situation in their minds than Chad being sexually immoral. That's a scandal to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that everybody... That doesn't mean that everybody needs to needs to get married at a particular age, but it does mean that we need to get our priorities in order. And having said that, we also need to make sure that we do not, as we, and Rosaria mentioned this a few minutes ago, as we lift up marriage, that we do not create a cult of marriage. The gospel is not marriage. Marriage points to the gospel, but the gospel is not marriage. And so single people are not deficient people. If single people are deficient people then we are following a deficient Savior who never married. And so I think we need to make that very clear in everything we say. Okay, so one of these couples, they meet, whether it's young or old, and they're moving towards marriage. You know the statistics. Right now, the average cost of a wedding in America is $25,200. So that, that economically strapped couple is having to foot that bill or their family. It's twenty five. I have five boys. Yeah, that's right. So... <laughs> You're, and I got three boys, so we're, we're good to go. But there's a whole wedding industrial complex that's been built up around these, making these ceremonies a special day. Sure. How should Christians think through the wedding ceremony in general? But specifically, what's your take on the trend, especially among young couples these days, of people writing their own wedding vows? Well, first of all, with the weddings, there was a, a study done recently that said the happiest marriages tend to be in people who have big, inexpensive weddings. And what they mean by that is there's a big community of people around them. They, they, they know a lot of people there in the community, but they're not turning that wedding into an event uh, that's there. And as I, I read that study, I thought, that is exactly right. I mean, when... When, uh, when Marie and I married, we really didn't have the option to put on some big, elaborate sort of uh, wedding because we, we couldn't afford to do it. Uh, we had mints and cake and, you know, the ladies in the community brought 
stuff and had it there. Um, and that was, I wouldn't have it any other way because everybody was kind of involved and they're all there. Um, I think the problem with what's happening with weddings is really symptomatic of, of what the, the larger picture is of marriage in the United States of America is we assume that the wedding is a celebration of the love of this couple. And so it is this moment in the life of this couple. And so everything is, is about that and showcasing that. In a Christian view of reality, that's not what a wedding is. A wedding is not just about the couple. A wedding is about the community of the people of God saying to this couple as they hear their vows, we are holding you accountable to your vows and we're going to love you and support you and walk with you through marriage and through the years to come. And so you mentioned writing your own vows. There are a lot of things that I say, and I'm in a job now where no matter what I say, 30% of the people are going to be angry about it. I'm angry about that. You're angry about that? Yeah, you are. It's 40%. Uh, So that that just kind of goes with the territory. But there is nothing that I have ever said that is more controversial. I don't care what it is, immigration reform or, you know, uh, homosexuality or, you know, nuclear war. None of that is as controversial as saying to a couple, you're not going to write your own vows. And uh, you you have people who are really upset and angry about this. And the reason for this is to say, uh, because this isn't your event, this is, this is, you're making vows to one another, but the community of witnesses around you, we are the ones who are, who are giving you the vows. And frankly, when you are 22 or 30 or whatever, at the beginning of your marriage, you really don't know what vow, what the vows are at this point. You have to have those elderly people who came before you and the, the, the other people who are walking in those other steps who are saying, these are the sorts of things you need to vow to one another because very few 25-year-olds are sitting there buying the ring thinking about Alzheimer's disease. But the vows they have to make are going to have to be about Alzheimer's disease. Uh, very few people, when they're in love and they're getting ready to marry, very few of them are thinking about what are we going to do if one of our children is uh, severely disabled and we're having to put every bit of energy in our marriage into caring uh, for her in our home and making sure that our marriage survives the stress of that. Nobody's thinking about that. What are we going to do if one of us has an affair? But those are the sorts of vows that have to be articulated. So a friend of mine who's a pastor, David Prince, who's here, says to his uh, couples in premarital counseling all the time, and I agree with him totally, the most important thing about your wedding is not what makes your wedding unique. The most important thing about your wedding is what is the same about your wedding for every other wedding of a faithful Christian. And so you ought to have, when people are sitting in there watching these vows, they ought to be reminded, those who are married, of the vows that they have made and standing before you and saying, we've been there, we've made those vows, we've walked through this and we're going to walk with you and we're going to hold you accountable uh, to those things. Okay, so this couple goes through their $25,000 wedding and they're seeking to live out faithfully. What does it look like to be a husband and wife in a Christian relationship? And one of the things that the Bible teaches is that um, there's distinct gender roles in marriage. So men are called to lead, women are called to submit, the scriptures teach. And oftentimes that can, in the culture around us, or even in the church itself, can cause people to pause. What do we mean by male leadership and female submission? And what does that look like practically in a strong Christian marriage? Well, 
Male leadership in Ephesians chapter 5 does not mean, woman, get me my chips. Uh, And I think too many Christian men think it does. Or they think it means, blessed wife, please get me my chips and then let's pray. That's not what it means either. What, what Paul is talking about when he says the husband is the head of the wife is as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It is about sacrificing oneself. It is about pouring out one's life in service to someone else. And the same thing I think is confusing when, when Paul talks about that language of submission. Uh, sometimes we have people, including in the church, who assume that women are called to submit to men. Bible never calls women to submit to men. Never. A woman is to be submissive to her own husband. And it's not just the wife who's submissive. We're all submissive in various ways and in various orders of, of life. And when we're talking about submission here, a woman who is submissive to her own, own wife, uh, in, according to the boundaries set by Scripture, is a woman who is refusing to submit to all sorts of other men. And I think the problem that we have in our culture is not that women are not submissive enough. I think the problem we have in our culture is that women are too submissive. Eve was too submissive. She listened to a different voice than the voice of God. And our Lord's Mary mother, uh, our Lord's mother Mary, uh, Baptists aren't used to talking about Mary, so we have to. Mary was somebody who is submissive to the word of the Lord, but Mary was no mousy doormat. I mean, uh, listen to the song that Mary sings. Now, as you know, some of our staff members, especially in our Washington office, get really frustrated with me for playing Christmas music in August. And uh, I understand that. I, I just argue the incarnation is all year long, so I can... They say, yeah, but that doesn't explain holly jolly Christmas. Okay, fair enough. But, but when, you think about, when you think about Christmas music, what's Mary singing? Mary is singing this song that is not the song of some cow-down, mousy woman. She's singing a triumphant, strong song of a woman who is submissive to God, but she is unsubmissive to Herod. And she is following the will of the Lord. And so I think that we have, in our culture right now, we have too many women who are living their lives worried about how they appear to men in general. And they see their value in terms of their uh, sexual attractiveness and availability to men. And I think that is one of the things that we see happening all over the place in terms of the way that uh, even even within the church, uh, the, the way that we the way that we feature women, sometimes uh, using those standards, standards of beauty that have been sent down to us from Madison Avenue rather than what the Lord declares is beautiful. I mean, we need to declare independence from all of that and raise up women to be beautiful in the sight of the Lord which means a strong faith in God and refusing to submit to all of the opinions of men around them.
So shifting gears some, let's, let's talk a little bit about same-sex attraction and, and same-sex marriage. One of the major things that's happened in the past two years as it relates to Christian ministry in this area has been the collapse of the ministry Exodus International. That was the, the largest ministry to those wrestling with same-sex attraction. And there was a lot of controversy, not just with that, but more broadly about the subject of reparative therapy. So can you help us understand what reparative therapy is and how we should think about how that fits into ministry in this area? Well, I mean, reparative therapy is one of those, one of those terms that is such an umbrella term. It can mean almost anything. It can mean anything in some people's minds from the person who sits down and, and helps somebody walk through what does it mean to, to follow Christ and to, and to be a disciple of Christ. If that's what you mean is counseling, then yeah, we ought to have that and have more of it. What some people don't mean when they say reparative therapy is this sort of psychotherapeutic model where the, the end goal is to see to it that the person is free from, or at least substantially free from, uh, same-sex attractions and is now uh, straight, you know, to use the language now. Uh, the problem with that is I think that that can easily become a substitute for the gospel, which never promises anybody freedom from temptation. What the gospel promises us is the Holy Spirit to give us the power to walk through temptation faithfully. And so I think that's that's the message that we ought to be sending, and not just in this issue, but to everybody. Now, does that mean that we that we are going to need people who are going to be able to come through and counsel people and to say, here's how you live faithfully. Here's how you deal with these unwanted attractions that you. Yeah, we need that. We sure do. And we need people who are trained, uh, who are able to understand those things and to do that. But I think there are a lot of Christians, and it's not just with this issue, it's with every other issue. There are a lot of Christians who assume that the Christian life means tranquility and freedom from temptation. If you're not fighting and struggling and wrestling with some temptation or other right now, then it just means you've given in to temptation. I mean, every Christian is walking through a time of temptation. We all have different points of vulnerability in different places. And so I think what we need to do is to spend time saying to people, here's what faithfulness to Christ looks like. And it may look different uh, for different people. When it comes to this issue, Rosaria Butterfield, who was out here earlier, she's married now. She's a mom. That's great. And that's commendable. That's not the only model. Uh, we have other people uh, who are here at this conference who would say that they're same-sex attracted. They're faithful to Christ. They, they haven't lost their same-sex attractions, but they're faithful and they're not, uh, they're, they're not, uh, they're not involved in sexual immorality and they're following after Christ. Okay. We need to commend that and to say that's exactly what we need to be, uh, supporting and upholding. So I think, I think we, we just need to, to recognize that we're, we're all walking through a time of temptation and there are different, uh, different ways that different people do that. When we started this event, one of the first questions I asked the group was to raise their hands if they knew somebody personally who was a family member, friend, community member, neighbor, coworker uh, who identifies as gay or lesbian or has same-sex attraction. So this is a very personal question for most of the people here. And I want to ask you some specific practical questions just to help them think through some dynamics. So let's say uh, one of them knows a, a couple who is in a same-sex relationship and decides they're going to be married, and they get an invitation in the mail to that wedding ceremony. Should they attend that same-sex wedding ceremony? Okay. This is not, thus saith the Lord, this is thus thinketh more. Okay. To- totally right. different All things. Right. So um, I think that what a wedding ceremony is, 
is a gathering of witnesses who by their very presence are saying we are here in order to support this couple and to walk with this couple uh, forward, hold them accountable and to walk forward. In that case, I would not attend the wedding. Now, I would attend the reception. I think it's a different thing. I think it's, I think it's more than fine to say, you're my friend. I love you. I disagree with this, but I love you and I'm, I'm here with you. Go to the reception. Go to the, the, you know, shower or if you're, uh, uh, somebody who's invited to the wedding shower or whatever. Go to those sorts of things. Uh, but I wouldn't go to the wedding itself because I think that is actually involving you, uh, in, in the vows. What about, let's say somebody has a, a lesbian sister who's in a relationship and they want to come visit for the holidays and she wants to bring her partner with them. You've got a guest bedroom in your house. You have couples stay in that room all the time, but you've got young kids in your home. You're not really sure what to do. What should they think about whether or not to allow a couple to stay in their house? Well, I think we need to, we need to follow Romans 14 uh, here and to recognize that, that uh, sinning against one's conscience is not of faith. And so I would not have somebody to, to, to sin against uh, his or her conscience. I think we ought to have, uh, we ought not to have a, a strict rule about what that ought to look like in terms of the specific parameters in your, in your home. What I would say though is you should not cut yourself off from relatives or friends who are lost or who are in situations that you disagree with. Jesus never did that. And so I think that we need to be involved in people's lives. And I think when it comes to children, uh, it's not just with this issue. You can't keep your children sheltered off from what's going on in the world. You can't do that now, uh, if you ever really, really could. Um, you're going to have to do this. We have people in our family, in our extended family, who are living together outside of marriage, heterosexually, but they're living together outside of marriage. Um, I think the worst thing that I could do with my kids is to say, we're not going to have anything to do with these people because they're another sort of people. They're evil people that we don't have anything to do with. If, if, I, if I send that message to my kids, I'm going to raise up Pharisees. Thank you, God, that I am not like Uncle Ronnie you know, or whatever. We don't really have an Uncle Ronnie, so I'm making that up. <laughs> uh, you know, you're, you're going to have that. And you're also going to send a signal to, to your children, we're scared of this and we, we want to keep you from this because it's, instead what you have to do is to teach your children, here's what we believe as Christians, here's why we think that what Uncle Ronnie is doing is not, is not what God has, has told us to do, but we love Uncle Ronnie and we want to see Uncle Ronnie come to faith in Christ, um, but, but he's part of our family and we welcome him uh, in our family. I think that's the way we've got to proceed. So let's imagine somebody comes to this event, they go home, they understand this issue better, they're really motivated to want to start to do ministry in their church. But let's say their church is not really engaged on this issue at all. What, what do you think churches should be doing as it relates to practical ministry to the gay and lesbian community or people that are wrestling with same-sex attraction? What should that look like practically in a church? Well, I think the first thing to do is to, is to it's got to start in the pulpit. It really does. And it's got to start with people who know how to preach in such a way that they're, they're not preaching about when they're talking about either homosexuality or any other, uh, sexual sin. They're not talking about people on the outside. Uh, they're, they're talking about things that people in their hearing are going to be grappling with and, and dealing with and loved ones of people in their hearing. 
And so I think that means uh, the way that you preach, the way that you apply. Uh, I think something simply, uh, simply as, as easy as saying, uh, some of you may be listening to me right now uh, are in a lesbian relationship. Here's what the Bible says to you. Here's what the gospel says to you. And you do that in such a way that what you're saying is neither simply avoiding the issue, so you're not calling to repentance, but also that you're saying when, when we say whosoever will may come, we're talking to you. Because I think there's, there's a lot of people who assume that there's a certain kind of person that Jesus wants. And if you meet that criteria, if you've got these little sins, quote unquote, then Jesus is willing to welcome you uh, on the basis of repentance and faith. But then they, they think there are all these other people who are so far gone that there's no way the invitation is to you. I think a pastor needs to say, this is what that, that means for you as the invitation. And the second thing is to help people to start thinking through what repentance looks like and what life in Christ looks like. Uh, I think that's the real, the, the real issue. I mean, Rosario was talking a few minutes ago, that was pretty powerful about things in the gay community uh, that, that she said were actually better done than in some churches. Right. Um, I, I think one of those things is you think of this, um, Sharif uh, Gerges mentioned this last night, the It Gets Better uh, campaign uh, Dan Savage is, is doing. Obviously, I don't agree with Dan Savage on probably anything. But I think there's something we can learn from that because what's he doing? He's saying to gay and lesbian teenagers, here's what your life can look like when you're 30, 40, 50, 60 years old. It gets better for you, and this is what it looks like. We need to be doing that with people in our churches, really kind of across the board. Here's what your life looks like in Christ, to imaginatively put them in that place. So I think... Having that intentionally in preaching is significant and important. And then also making sure that I think that because this issue has become such a culture war sort of issue, we tend to sometimes, or at least some churches, tend to treat it differently Mm -hmm. than they treat other sorts of issues. And so there are all sorts of people we disagree with that we would be more than welcome, more than willing to have come with us to church and, you know, have in the home like the pastor did with Rosaria. But when it comes to this issue, I think there are a lot of people who think, wait a minute, if I do that, it's going to seem like I'm, I'm on the other side of the culture war here. Uh, God didn't call you to a culture war. God called you to a spiritual war. And it's not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So love people. Share the gospel with people and don't be afraid to do that. And as that starts to happen in a congregation, then it builds a culture where other people start to do that. And then giving people the freedom to talk about things I mean, one of the saddest things that I've ever encountered was um, after a Wednesday night, uh, when I was serving a church after Wednesday night uh, uh, time of uh, preaching, we had a time of prayer, and I said, anybody have anything to, to pray about? People raise their hands and ask for prayer requests. And this one woman came up after, and she whispered, my daughter's a lesbian. Can you pray for her? And she's far from the Lord. She doesn't know the Lord. And so I said, hey, I'll pray for you, but why are you whispering? Why are you looking around? And she said, well, I don't want everybody else to know that my daughter's a lesbian because then they're going to be wondering what did we do? and what? That's a disgrace. You know, I want to just cry at this moment and say, if we as the body of Christ cannot stand up and say, 
Uh, here we are, we love our kids, and our kids are in all of these various situations. If there's some particular sin that has to be whispered in our congregation, then we're not truly Christian. Why? Another issue tied in with these discussions that comes up more and more often in the culture is as it relates to gender identity. And so there, there are increasing numbers of people who are identifying themselves as it relates to gender in a, in a way that's different than how they were born biologically. And sometimes that seems complicated for Christians to think through what, what, should, we, what should that look like for how we think through that, how we minister to those who identify as transgender Walk us through those types of issues. Well, first of all, we need to re- recognize where that comes from. And it's, it's something that's not just present out there. It's something that is very present within the church, which is this understanding that I am different from my body. Hmm. You know, even, even some of our hymnody sounds awfully, awfully close to this. I'm this little soul spirit, you know, sort of thing. And I just have this, have this body that I'm, I'm moving around. The two are, are separate. That's not what the Bible teaches us. We're created soul and body together. We're, we're a whole. Uh, and so we, we need to recognize where that, where that comes from. The idea that I am somebody other than my creational reality, my, my bodily reality. And this idea that somehow gender is incidental, gender is internal, gender is psychological only, uh, that's, that's, that's where that's coming from. You need to understand that. That doesn't mean, though, that that's what you're debating. You need to recognize that the people who are coming to you, that, that biologically male person who says, I think I'm uh, a woman or vice versa, um, that person really experiences that and, and believes that. And so you don't have to agree with that at all. And, and, and I would say we, we can't. The Bible teaches us that God has created us male and, and female. But you need to recognize that's how that person is seeing and viewing uh, the world. And then to recognize if you're not ministering to people who are thinking through this issue or grappling through this issue, it's just because you have part of your mission field that you're leaving to somebody else in your community. Uh, I have had over the last couple of months, I can't tell you how many, especially youth pastors who are calling and saying, one of them just a few weeks ago, a few months ago, who said, you know, we've got a Wednesday night Bible study. He said, I've got a lot of unchurched kids. They're not Christians, but they come to the Wednesday night Bible study. And we have one, he's, he's biologically male, but he wants to be referred to uh, by a, a girl's name and with female pronouns. And he said, what do I do? He said, because on the one hand, I'm trying to, I'm trying to minister to him, I'm trying to love him, I'm trying to eventually share the gospel with him. Uh, on the other hand, I don't want to sort of add to his confusion. Hmm. I think the very fact that that youth minister is having that issue means that he is doing what Jesus told us to do, which is to go out into all the world and to seek and to save that which was lost. So if... If this, if the conversation like that seems freakish and weird to you and, and you can't imagine anybody in your community uh, who, who is uh, transgender and who is in that situation, it's just because you're not on mission, at least in that, uh, in that area. It seems like uh, same-sex marriage is rapidly expanding in the state. So we, even this month, we've gone from 19 states to 32. Yeah. The trend seems to be pointing that direction 
And increasingly, there's hostility to those who don't think that this is right. And, and oftentimes, uh, with those that criticize us, we'll, we may be labeled as bigots or those who are discriminating, those types of things. You're going to be increasing pressure on churches. And, and we want to reach people. We want to minister in this area. And so there can be a tendency when the pressure comes to fold or to compromise. What, what would be your counsel to the, the people in this room and the churches that they represent on how to maintain our convictions when things become increasingly hostile, but do it in a way that still shows kindness? Well, sometimes when people ask about uh, convictional kindness, we've talked about a lot. Um, they, uh, one time I had a church that came in and said, help us um, with your convictional kindness so we'll be able to speak on this issue without being seen as bigots. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Then you misunderstand what convictional kindness is about. I'm not here to teach you how not to be seen as bigots. Uh, I'm here to teach you how not to be bigots. Yeah. <laughs> Those two, two are totally different things. Uh, convictional kindness does not mean that you're going to have fewer people mad at you. Convictional kindness means you have more people mad at you. Uh, and because if you have both the conviction, here's what the scripture says, and you have the kindness, you're speaking with people as people created in the image of God. You're going to make both sets of people mad. Jesus did all the time. Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house. He, he makes Zacchaeus' friends mad when he says, give the money back. He makes the religious leaders mad because he's in there with Zacchaeus and the tax collectors. I mean, so that's going to happen. And so I think what you ought to be, if you're seeing yourself moving forward in a ministry like Jesus, the sign to that is not that more and more people are liking you. And the sign to that is not that more and more people are hating you. Uh, sometimes people hate you because you're a jerk. Yeah. You know? <laughs> And sometimes people like you, not because they see Jesus in you, but because they see Joel Osteen in you, you know, just sort of, um, not that there's anything wrong with that, you know. but if, if what you're doing instead is coming in and saying, we're speaking with conviction about what the Bible says, but when we're speaking with kindness, we're speaking with kindness not as some sort of a strategy, but because we genuinely love the people that we're talking to and because we want to say what Jesus has given us to say. And there are a lot of people who are scared to say what Jesus has given us to say. And if you are scared to preach the whole counsel of God, including what the Bible teaches about sexuality, then go get job training. Get out of the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if what you want to do is simply to come in and to vent all of your culture war frustrations against everything that you see wrong in America, get out of the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've been given a mission, all of us, of reconciliation, which means that we speak what the Bible says but we speak not just Jesus' words, we speak them the way that he speaks them so that people are able to recognize the voice of Christ. Jesus is not afraid to speak the truth. 
But Jesus is not disgusted with people or shocked by people or outraged by people. And if we start talking the way that Jesus talks and living the way that Jesus lives, we're not going to be able to be free from being labeled bigots. You're just going to have one group calling you bigots and one group calling you sellouts. Jesus never promised you freedom from that. Just live in it and go forward, onward. That's a good good note to end on for this conversation. Thank you so much. We all express your appreciation to Dr. Moore. If you'd like to submit a question, email us at questions at erlc.com. That's questions at erlc.com. Or on Twitter and Facebook, use the hashtag AskRDM. Thanks for listening to the Questions and Ethics podcast with Russell Moore. To check out future broadcasts, subscribe via iTunes or visit us on ERLC.com. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.